Well, good evening. It's lovely to welcome you all here on this lovely Monday night. My name's Mark. It's lovely to have you here, and I'm looking forward to this evening as we contemplate um, this topic. What we're going to try and do is create a space where we can really think together about matters of faith, of morality, of our culture. We want to think about how we've got to where we are and how we should live in the light of it as people who confess Jesus as Lord. And that's not easy or simple. So thank you for coming. It would be less fun for me to speak to a bunch of empty chairs, though I'd probably still do that. But it is lovely, and I'm so delighted that we can engage our minds in some of these matters. Context is this. If, you weren't, if you're not up with it, last week, Andrew Thorburn had a, he was previously a CEO of the National Australia Bank. He is the chair of the board of a church, an evangelical Anglican <coughs> church in Melbourne, City on a Hill, which has a number of satellite congregations around the country. Andrew has been part of that church for years. He chairs their board. So he's been a lifelong Essendon Footy Club supporter. He was working with them. They've had some difficult times. He got asked to become the CEO. He got the job. And then people trawled through the website of City on a Hill, and they found out that in 2013, Guy outlined a classic Christian view on human sexuality and abortion. That hit the media. The LGBT community and progressive inclusive community of Melbourne went up in arms. The Essendon Footy Club is not about that at all. And he resigned 30 hours later. He wasn't sacked. He resigned. But the chair of the board of Essendon made it very clear he had to choose between the footy club and the church. So there we have it. And then I thought, this is something that's really significant. I don't claim any prophetic insight, but about 15 years ago when we were leading a church in Melbourne, I distinctly recall saying, as we preached through the book of Romans, I said, I am sure that in the years to come, people who hold conservative views on human sexuality will be persecuted for these views. I also want to say, the sky is not falling in. God is God. Jesus is Lord. The Russians aren't bombing us. Uh, no one is being beheaded. Our problems, while they feel can feel significant, are actually really not that significant, even while they are, but they're not. So uh, partly it's just keep a perspective. We're not being martyred for our faith. Yet, that could come. Unlikely in Australia, but if you, you know, there are worse things than dying for your faith, I suspect, according to Jesus. So how have we got here? How have we got to the point where we have hateful and bigoted beliefs? We, if you hold views that for 2,000 years have been held as mainstream in all the Abrahamic faiths, you are now a hateful bigot, according to the premier of Victoria and many, many other people. And I want to suggest within the context of the presuppositions and the worldview that Daniel Andrews and many people in our culture hold, that is an accurate description of us. Within the context of their own system of thought, you would have to say we are hateful and bigoted. I don't think their system of thought is right, so therefore I don't think that charge is right. Though sometimes it is, even when you have the right system of thought. There are, there's plenty of church history that shows we can be very hateful and bigoted. There's a tension here, right? You can, you can say, well, the church, in all its forms, has done awful things. The problem with doing, having that argument now is it sounds an awful lot like victim blaming. 
So let's not victim blame. It's let's not do the what aboutism. So okay, so Andrew Thorburn's had a hard time. Guy Mason's had a hard time. We might have a hard time, and and we'll say, oh well, that's a problem. And people will go, well, what about the Crusades? You know, look at how awful you were. What about the Royal Commission and so on? And you go, okay, that is right. But how did we get there? How do we understand this moment? And in the brief moment, I just wanted to outline. There's a whole lot of ways to think about this, and it's not simple. And so you can think about it. One of the ways to think about it is different framings or metaphors or mental models. So if you go, here's underlying reality, there are a whole lot of different ways of understanding that underlying reality. It's a bit like a solitaire diamond. The solitaire diamond has many facets and you can look at it in all sorts of ways and the light gets refracted through in different ways. So reality can be understood in a variety of ways. And I'm going to go through some of these in more or less detail. At a very simple level, in terms of group dynamics, as social beings, as sophisticated primates, it, doesn't, it takes very, very little to mobilize an us-them dynamic between two groups of people. It's very quick. They've done experiments in a, in a classroom to illustrate this, where you, you divide the kids into blue-eyed and brown-eyed kids, and just simply doing that, you give them you know, half a day, and they'll be at each other's throats around that group identity. It's very quick. The standard primate response to encountering another group coming towards them is to fight them. Tribal groups are like that. Baboons and monkeys are like that. We're all like that. So mobilizing people to attack someone who's different from you is a very, very powerful way of gaining group cohesion and identity. The radicalness of Christianity is that, that in Christ, those group divisions are are theoretically transcended because Jesus says we're all one in Christ, but then actually they're practically transcended as we have the same spirit and as we worship together in practice over 2,000 years, those things have been broken down, right? So, so that's powerful. But the group dynamics are mobilized easily, and we need to think about that and be aware of that and be aware of how we get caught up in that ourselves. We're, no one, we're none of us immune from that. As an aside, by the way, I have to say, my people have 2,000 years of being excluded from positions of privilege and power because of our ethnicity and religious background. As a Jew, I have a lot of, you know, got a lot of experience at being marginalized and excluded and seeing group dynamics mobilized against us in terrible ways. In, in Cape Town, where I grew up, in living memory, there was a very lovely elite club, country club, that when I was a, a teenager still excluded Jews from membership. Now, all that seems to have happened now is that uh, white middle-class Anglicans and Catholics have suddenly discovered the great pain that sometimes the group can turn against them and exclude them. And that's very painful. It's awful, but it's not the end of the world. There are legal implications, so you can think about this legally. Julie McGonagall, who's the principal at head of school at St. Andrew's Cathedral School, is very acutely aware that the legal implications of legal discrimination, can Christian schools discriminate legally in terms of who they employ? That's a, that's a live, massive issue, and maybe we'll chat a bit about that later. 
are you allowed to discriminate? On, on what basis? And does Daniel Andrews have a, a hate speech case to answer? Does Sindon Footy Club have an anti-discrimination case to answer, at least under the Equal Opportunities Tribunal? Though the last I saw, the Victorian Equal Opportunities Commissioner came out in support of the Essendon Footy Club, which seems quite strange. So there's some legal issues there to think about. And and we as citizens of Australia can avail ourselves of those sources and that legal framework that we have. There is legislation going around the Religious Discrimination Act that Christians should be involved with. We should think about that while we have the opportunity. So uh, there's political implications of this, aren't there? Massive political implications. So the theory is we live in a liberal democracy, right? That where where individual dignity and human rights and the rights of the individual are upheld, and then we all get together and we vote and we govern and those who rule us govern by the consent of the governed and we can influence the society and influence our culture in that way by working together in a classic liberal democracy. I, I think the demise of the influence or the, the reduction of the influence of Christianity in our culture poses a massive threat to the functioning of liberal democracy. There is an argument that liberal democracy needs Christianity to survive because Christianity provides a vision of human value that sends human culture that says made in the image of God every single person has a unique inestimable inalienable right to life and a dignity and a value a liberal democracy classically understood does not provide that it assumes that and when you strip out Christianity, when the influence of Christianity diminishes, your political theory and your moral philosophy is left. The only great good of liberal democracy is freedom. So your freedom and dignity go together. Christianity provides a dignity. You take away your Christian worldview and what you're left with is the pursuit of freedom. And the pursuit of freedom itself can actually become totalitarian and 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 really very oppressive, as we're discovering, because what, what makes me free, you perceive as impinging on your freedoms. And so it's not just Andrew Thorburn who's having a hard time. I would commend you to uh, go on Google the mermaid, the case against the mermaid group in the UK, which is a trans activist group who took the lesbian and gay alliance of the UK to court to try and get them deregistered as a charity because the trans activist mermaids were offended and believed it was hateful and bigoted that lesbians did not want men in their meetings, in their change rooms, and on their dating apps. And so they've taken them to court, and they've been absolutely hammered by the British courts. This is following the deregistering of the Tavistock Clinic. So what's happened, of course, is is that the, the, the pursuit of freedom without any bigger moral framework actually becomes quite oppressive. And then, of course, there's the pragmatic politics. Always think about that, right? It's poll-driven, base-driven, and the tyranny of the majority. So uh, what do you do as a Christian about that? Well, you get involved. You get involved. You mobilize. You work. You, you join a party. Pick a party and join it and move it to to a sane center. That would be my view. Understand that, that, that politicians don't read a lot of philosophy. 
in my experience, and it's limited. Typically, politicians are very busy and they're pragmatic and they're always on about the polls. So we need to think about that as well. So then there's some psychological things going on that are massively significant as well. You can't understand our current moment unless you understand the, the psychological world that we inhabit. Everybody, for example, everyone in Balmain that I speak to has their own psychologist and counsellor. It used to be the parish priest that you talked to about your deep spiritual problems. And I don't say that to disparage it. I think mental health and, and great clinical care is fabulous, right? Bring it on. I see a counsellor. It's great. But you also need a priest. And you also need a philosopher. And you also need a community, right? But that, that is because we are a community and a c culture that is what, what the philosophers now call a culture of expressive performative individualism. So the essence of who I am, my value as a human being, comes from me having the freedom, see the point above, to express who I really, my deepest desires need to be expressed, and not just expressed, but I find out who I am as I express and perform myself in front of you, and you affirm my performance, and that gives me value. So that's why, for example, tolerance is not enough. It's not enough to say, I affirm your right to have sex with whom you want to have sex with in the privacy of your own bedroom. I disagree with you. I think what you're doing is not how God wants you to live, but I will absolutely defend your right to do that if you want to do it and to be free of persecution. So that's the view I've always held. When, when I was interviewed, when we were moving to Canada in a very liberal diocese, the, the bishop wanted to know what my views were on human sexuality because... And I said exactly that. I said, my view is, uh, this is how I think God has ordered the world and how the grounds for human flourishing. But I will defend the right of a gay or lesbian person to be free of persecution and prosecution. But that's not enough because we're still saying, actually, your behavior is not how God intended it to be. Now, that is very hateful and bigoted because if your identity and your sense of self-worth doesn't come from God, it comes from seeing your expressive performance mirrored in the approval and acclamation of others. If I don't see approval in you, what I experience is you telling me I'm a fundamentally worthless being. Of course, it's going to feel terrible. We should not diminish the impact of disapproval, of tolerant disapproval of people's choices, because my choice and my performance and my expression of that is what makes me valuable and gives my life meaning as a human being. And who are you to tell me that I can't do this? And when you tell me I can't do that, you're telling me I'm worthless. So that's very important. And then coming on from that, we have, as a result of that, the coddling of our culture. That is... If that is true, then what we've really got to do is make sure that none of these people ever experience rejection in that way, because that would be terrible. And, uh, of course, any psychologist will tell you that the way to address your fears is to address your fears, not to avoid them. Progressive desensitization is what is required. If you're scared of speaking in public then you should actually join Toastmasters and in little bits learn how to speak in public, right? We culturally, from a good place, because the pulling apart and the diminishment of someone's very person by disapproval and the rhetoric of hatred 
And the power of these words mean we now want to protect people from that. But as one psychologist says, in fact, what we need to do is increase our capacity to deal with things that make us uncomfortable so we can regulate our uncomfortable emotions and think for ourselves. And now that happens in the church as well, by the way. Churches can exist in a little echo chamber as well. And you go, no, no, you've got to actually allow yourself to be exposed to things that make you very, very uncomfortable. And people. And that's the way we grow. Now, so that's the psychological frame. The other thing you need to understand is that there is these... What we're experiencing now rests on hundreds of years of philosophical thought. This is not a new thing. Cultures shift in the same way that businesses go bankrupt. Very, very slowly at first and then very quickly. So the, when you think about what's happened in our culture in the last 10 years around human sexuality, extraordinary. 10 years ago, there was a bipartisan support for not changing the Marriage Act. And then suddenly, anyone who thought that you shouldn't change the Marriage Act was a hateful bigot who should be excluded and cancelled. So how did that happen? It's hundreds of years of philosophical thought that trickled down and then got a certain amount of momentum to the point where it became unthinkable that what it was advocating would not be seen to be true. So let's go to Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Man is born free, but everywhere in chains. So the essence of our humanity is good, and then society and culture oppresses us. As the French famously said, you won't be free until the last king is strangled with the guts of the last bishop. Isn't that great? So culture, people, religion, authority, hierarchy is what makes us bad, and we're all intrinsically good. Isn't that true of your children? Intrinsically. Then you take Karl Marx uh, and you, you take some of those ideas and what Marx did was, was say that our fundamental identity comes from the class or the group that we belong to. I have to tell you this because it's quite funny and it might explain a lot about me. In my final year 12 English exam, we had to write essays. The topic that I chose was, you were given this first part of the sentence. I was in South Africa in 1987. South Africa needs blank like a fish needs a bicycle. So what do you think I put in the blank? South Africa needs Marxism like a fish needs a bicycle. And I wrote a multi-page political diatribe on the fundamental flaws of Marx's thought that actually reduced people to group membership and robbed us of individual responsibility and freedom and agency and dignity. And I said, that is the very worst thing that South Africa needs. That's the last thing South Africa needs. It needs individual responsibility, not group identity. But that is Marx's thought, and it, it's, it gets poo-pooed when you say this, it has steeped the universities in the academy. Demonstrably, Marxist socialist thinkers with this construct are massively overrepresented in the academy. And people who disagree with it have been sidelined and moved out of the social sciences, of the education departments, even of some of the hard sciences, which is crazy. Jump forward a few years, Michel Foucault, that wonderful Frenchman, just you know, ask all the North African teenage boys who he was fond of abusing. What Foucault did was he said, basically, all of life is power. So you take Rousseau, we're all innocent. You add Marx, it's all about groups. And then you take Foucault, and Foucault says, all of life is about an exercise in power. 
So all theology, all art, all everything is just about power. And the way we live in the world is to strip away and see through the power plays that are everywhere. So what you are experiencing now is really a power play. What I'm doing is using my rhetorical ability and all these ideas to keep you in a state of oppression so that I, as a white, cisgendered male who owns and expresses my group identity, can oppress all you women. And those who think you're men are really women because I'm oppressing you and I'm telling you that. That's Foucault. Don't underestimate that. The rhetoric of power, of everything is power, is, is, is steeped in our universities. It shapes feminist discourse, it shapes the trans discourse, it shapes how we think about race. Let me tell you, it's going to shape how we think about the voice to parliament. Let's go there for a moment. It's about power and who's in power and who's being advantaged, and that's straight out of Foucault. So then you get other guys like Antonio Gramsci, who uh, followed on from Foucault and what his view was, that culture is this hegemonic force and the control of which is at least as important as the working class. So there was a movement in the 60s and 70s to say of the left, of the Marxist left, following on Gramsci's view, there's been a 50-year strategy to control culture in the academy in the arts, in politics. And, and that's, again, talk about what you learn from Christianity. They've learned that from Christianity. That's what Christians did. We, we just we did it for like 1,800 years. And they've gone hard at it for 50 years. It's all about control of culture. And, and, then, and then coming on that, you then end up with a view of, well, how do you control culture? One of the, the best ways to do it is to get everyone to deconstruct what you've, what you've inherited. You pull apart everything. So Jacques Derrida, another Frenchman, God bless the French, Stanley Fish, comes out of the, the social sciences and the literary departments who say the key way to flourish in the world is to pull everything apart, to see through everything, because it's all power, it's all oppression, it's all injustice, so you just pull everything apart. And that includes gender, that includes race, that includes religion. Deconstruction is everywhere. Now, at its heart... Where I, where I think the real battle is, is it ends up with what is called anti-realism. And philosophically, this is the most important thing to get your head around, I believe. An anti-realism that you apply these thoughts to all of reality. The final rebellion is, is a rebellion against reality itself. That reality itself doesn't exist. There is no real world beyond ourselves or beyond our language games. So you see this with gender. You see this is the, the pain and the agony of the, the genuinely gender dysphoric person who says, I'm a 14-year-old girl who's discovering it's awful to become a girl. And I don't want to be a girl. And I see my brothers and they have a much better time. And I'm excluded and marginalized. I don't really fit in. And I, and I just want to be a boy. And reality is awful. It's awful being a girl. And so what we are now saying to somebody like that is, well, reality itself can be shaped to your will and your desires. And again in its best moment, that's a good desire. Like, who wants someone to be in pain? But, 
as my friend and your friend Dallas Willard says, I would say this, if you want to read any philosopher or theologian, I think Willard is the most important theologian of the last 50 years for our cultural moment because he was a philosopher at the University of Southern California and his doctoral work was in realism. He's a realist. His PhD was in a philosopher called Edmund Herschel, who was overlooked by the anti-realist movement of Foucault and Derrida et al. But what Willard, out of his philosophy, he said, no, philosophically, I'm a realist. And then you apply that to Christianity. And I actually believe, I'm very convinced that in Willard's conception of scripture and the Christian life, you, we, have, we have some of the best resources to address the current cultural moment, because he's a realist and he's philosophically extremely sophisticated and he puts things really well, like reality is what you run into when you're wrong. So therefore it's worthwhile helping people figure out what reality really is. I heard Jordan Peterson talking about this with a woman called Helen Joyce, who has a, written a very, a, a, an excellent book on the transgender movement. And, and, and Peterson's comment, he says, as a clinician, he could see that the move of, we were going to see an epidemic of this psychogenic embrace of transgender identity amongst teenage girls in the same way that happened 20 years ago with eating disorders. And so if you've, and if you think, if you've ever been with someone who's had an eating disorder, right, it's a terrible, terrible mental illness. It's a distortion of how they see their bodies. What do you say to a, a woman who's got an eating disorder, or a man who's got an eating disorder? Do you go, well, actually, because they, they experience themselves as fat. They're starving themselves to death and experiencing themselves as fat. So what do you say to them? Well, yes, actually, you're really fat. Reality is you're really fat. I, I know you're starving yourself to death, but actually you identify as fat, so you're fat. Well, no, because that reality is going to kill them. So as Christians, we are realists, philosophically. And that has enormous implications. One of the things I love about the Catholic tradition, for example, is the idea of natural law. And that our understanding of scripture is grounded in reality. And that you can derive ethical principles in a way of life from a sustained, systematic engagement with reality as it is. That's significant. That's very, very significant. Now, this comes from Shane Parrish, who runs a podcast called The Knowledge Project. Shane is a brilliant guy. His career started out in Canada in cybersecurity and in the intelligence community. So where you can't just believe whatever you want to believe because people's lives are at stake. And Parrish has written a trilogy on mental models. He says, what you've got to do is you've got to live in the real world. And he says, our failures to update from interacting with reality spring primarily from three things. Not having the right perspective or vantage point. So you don't really understand it. Okay, so when you think about our culture, why do we not learn from group identitarian thinking is tragic and terrible? Why don't we learn from that? Well, because maybe we don't understand the philosophy behind it and we don't understand what's really going on. Okay, but then the second one, which I love, is ego-induced denial. It's very, very painful to admit you're wrong, isn't it? Well, maybe not for you. But I find it very hard. And, and we get committed to this view. And so then to say, well, actually, I'm wrong. And I'm deeply wrong about things that really matter. That's really hard. So how do you, how do you think Daniel Andrews is ever going to learn that his views on human sexuality are wrong? 
It's going to be extremely hard. Learning from reality is very hard. It's very shameful. It's very shameful to admit you're wrong. But without admitting you're wrong, you'll never learn. So all learning involves shame. And to the extent that we don't want to deal with shame, we'll never learn anything new. And we'll never learn from reality. So you go, here's the beauty of Christianity. What's the, what's the heart of the gospel? So I'm free from shame. So because I'm free from shame, I can learn from reality. I can admit when I'm wrong. And then the third thing, which is very profound, is the distance from the consequences of our actions in the business world, in the political world. We'll make decisions now, but it'll be 10 or 15 years before I see the consequences of them, so it doesn't matter. I'll have got my bonus and cleared out. I'll have been voted out long before we see the consequences of this. By the way, one of the beauties of the insurance industry, what, what does the insurance industry do? Is it makes people feel the consequences of their actions. What effectively changes policy is when people start getting sued by insurance companies for damage that's been done to them. Because then you feel the consequences and then you learn from reality. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a thing about the diffusion of ideas that you need to understand as well. And the diffusion of ideas works like this. You have the classic philosophers, Marx, the French philosophy post-World War II, gets into the social science departments, gets into the university education departments, gets into the school teachers, and then your five-year-old just absorbs this as true. It's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. So that's really problematic for some of us. Almost everything that I've said tonight and probably that many of you would think, your average kid in your average school here would think is an example of just hateful bigotry because they've just absorbed this worldview. They just, they just absorb it. That's the trickle down and it's a diffusion, but understand the roots, understand where it comes from. And of course, it's all made worse by technology, social media, algorithms, and echo chambers. And what they enable is a disembodied attack. <laughs> yeah. I reckon Daniel Andrews would have found it hard to look Guy Mason in the eyes and say to him, Guy, I think you're a hateful, bigoted human being. That's hard. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Uh, how should we then live with citizens of two kingdoms? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And you're a citizen of Australia. And what a great country to be a citizen of. By the way, it's a phenomenal country. It's, and, and it's only going to get better. But how do we live? As citizens of Australia, we avail ourselves of all the rights of citizenship and we get involved. Influence goes to those who show up. It's as simple as that, right? Just show up. In voluntary organizations, people with time and money have a disproportionate influence. It's true in political parties. It's true in civil society. Show up. Show up. Show up with faith. But then show up as a citizen of heaven. You carry those two citizenships. So when you read scripture... Uh, for example, the book of Daniel. Look at how Daniel and, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, lived in the middle of a hostile culture. They trusted God, and uh, they're like, okay, I'll do what God wants me to do, even if it costs me my life. The, his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down and worship uh, the, the God of... And they came before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, well, listen, we're going to do what our God wants us to do. And he might save us or he might not save us, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to worship your God anyway. I just love that. And I think that's the path for Christians, right? You go, well, we're going to worship Jesus. 
And he might save us or he might not, but we're still going to worship Jesus. So there were three things I thought we should do. When you live as citizens of two kingdoms, we should outthink the world. We should outlive the world. Like realism, Christianity is about realism, a humility in the face of the real world. And if we live in step with Jesus in the kingdom of the heavens now, we should live a quality of life that, that stands out, that is different. We will be like it was, as Steve Shavura said, we will be the people where our, our boys don't watch porn and aren't raised on porn. We will be the people who don't kill unborn children. We will be the people who take individual human beings with utmost seriousness. We'll be the people who value science because we're realists. We don't get into the anti-science move that is afoot in our world. We'll be the people who value peace and civility and gentleness and kindness and who don't gossip and who don't attack each other in social media. We'll be those people, which goes to our third point, we'll outlove the world because that's what it's about. There's an old saying in youth ministry, no teenager cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I actually think that's true in our in our day. People don't they don't they don't care what we know until they know that we care. And we care for our enemies. We care for those with whom we who we deeply disagree. We care for those who think that we're hateful and bigoted. And we love them. So that is where I'm going to finish and we're going to take questions and discussion now. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that Whatever is of you, whatever is true and good and beautiful will take root in our hearts and bear fruit for eternity. And whatever is not of you, whatever moves us away from you and away from reality, let those words and ideas fall to the ground and wither and die. I pray more than anything else, Lord Jesus, that you will make us a people of love. And so we commit ourselves into your gracious hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.